There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, friends and listeners of Climactic. It's Mark Spencer here. And I'm sorry to say this episode is coming to you late for reasons completely of my own doing. The episode planned for today has been rolled back by a few days but you can look forward to a live event recorded at the National Gallery of Victoria, put on and organized by La Trobe University, featuring past guest Maisha Moyne, organizer and MC of the first school strike in Melbourne, the head of Greenpeace Australia New Zealand, Amanda Cahill of the New Economy Foundation, and Bob Brown, founder of the Australian Green Party, former senator, all-around legend who probably needs no introduction from me. So look out for that coming in the next few days. But with the opportunity of an open slot for today, we're releasing a bit of a double episode. As you may already know, Climactic has become a podcast network with the launch of our first new show, Artbreaker. And I wanted to bring you not only the first episode here and point you where to go to get more, but I also wanted to bring you this interview with one of Artbreaker's hosts, author and poet Beth Spencer. So you'll first hear this interview with Beth about her journey into writing, her approach to the medium, the climate crisis, and tuna fish. True story. You'll also hear a couple readings of Beth's poems, and then stick around to the end for the first episode of Artbreaker, in which Beth interviews award-winning author James Bradley, who created Australia's first piece of climate fiction. You'll hear readings from James of Clade, his climate fiction novel, and also from his young adult fiction trilogy, The Change. It's a really beautiful episode, and we're really proud of it, and we can't wait to bring you more Artbreaker. We're also looking to expand the Artbreaker team, so if you have an interest in a particular artistic medium and its intersection with the climate crisis, we'd love for you to get in touch with us. Just drop an email to hello at climactic.fm, and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. But for now, here's this week's episode of Climactic, and look out for a bonus episode in a few days. And thanks to Artbreaker host, friend, and collective member, Beth Spencer, for both this interview and her amazing work with James Bradley for episode one of Artbreaker. Hello and welcome to Climactic, the podcast for our climactic times. I'm your host for today's episode, Mark Spencer, and today I'm having a chat with the host of one of our new shows. That's right, Climactic is becoming a network, and we're launching a new show about the intersection between arts and the climate crisis. The show's going to be called Artbreaker, and I'm having a chat today with Beth Spencer, one of the new hosts of this show, and someone with a quite rather interesting story of how we, we met and started talking in the first place. Beth, I'd love to hear kind of your perspective on how we got linked up. Well, you messaged me on Facebook, and I think it was one of those wonderful things that Facebook does is it connects people that have never met with people who've never met with people who've never met. Mm-hmm. And so it was like through a mutual Facebook friend. 
and because we had the same surname. <laughs> that's, that's right. Oh, I, I'm glad you said it the, the way that you did, because I, 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 tongue-in-cheek, but I did reach out being like, ah, oh, any chance we're related? And no, it turns <laughs> out that we are uh, potentially very distant members of the same family tree, if if the same tree at all. Which, which You look uncan- uncannily like some of my nephews, but no, I don't think they've got any relationship there. But... I really, you know, from this strange beginnings, I feel like there's a real kind of a interesting connection there in the way that the one conversation we've had before this and the the different messages we've been sending that it really feels, I feel really pleased that you did reach out to me and delighted to be invited into this. And the bizarre thing was that I'd actually been thinking, I'd really like to do a podcast. I'd like to, you know, interview people, talk about, you know, what's going on and and writers with writers and their practice Mm. and creativity and why creativity is so important at the moment. And, but, you know, I don't want to have to learn a whole new trick about how to do the podcasting back end and create an audience and all that kind of thing. And then... I opened up my messages and there you were. (laughs) (laughs) So if one of these days, folks, you get a random message from me, it might just be something worth pursuing or not. Um, I'm really glad it did work out, Beth. And and I think definitely we've got a lot of mutual interests and a lot of uh, places where our interests in the written word and in climate change and where kind of the the story of humanity is going – that we we've been exploring, yeah, we've been talking over, but I'm really excited with this new show to explore the intersection of art and climate and see what comes of it. So, speaking about the written word, Beth, um, I, I myself am not an author, but I'm fascinated by authors. I'm, I'm a huge consumer of books, and growing up as a huge sci-fi fan. I want to learn about your relationship with the written word, Beth, and uh, where your desire to become an author came from. Well, I actually didn't grow up with many books. I had my mother's sort of Sunday school prizes from the 1930s, which was um, <laughs> sort of very old-fashioned stuff. But one of them was Little Women, which you may know from the movie. Um, and that was the first time I came across the idea that there was this thing called a writer that you could be, and that was in the character Joe March, who's a wonderful character. So I had this sort of secret desire to be a writer from, from then, from like about age seven. My main narrative language, my first narrative language, was actually television. I mm. loved all the sitcoms from the 60s. And would, you, would you mind naming some of the titles that kind of spring oh, to mind? Oh, Bewitched, The Beverly Hillbillies, Max Smart, The Munsters, The Adams Family. Were you a Bonanza viewer? The Bonanza? <laughs> I did watch Bonanza, but I'm really surprised that that's the one you, you pull out of the hat out of... I, I think in terms of the high art of the, the 1960s sitcoms, I'm not sure if um, Bonanza fits Bonanza rated. <laughs> it was well, a, I watched the Ponderosa, the 90s kind of follow-up 30 oh, years later. Okay. Yeah. Or the Jetsons. I think there was a remake of the Jetsons in the 90s, wasn't there? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I didn't get that on PBS where I was in the oh, States. Oh, okay. But a lot of these programs, and I actually think a lot of them were exploring that kind of anxiety. It was like the first space age. And... It was a post-war, this idea of post-war prosperity and progress and everything. And so there was mm. this, this enormous ability to change and, and create life in the world and everything and reshape it that was going on there. Was, you know, the bombing of Hiroshima was, was only 20 years earlier. Mm-hmm. And 
so uh, I like to look at those sitcoms that a lot of them were like the Jetsons, which is done in 1962 and was set in 2062, and they're all mm-hmm. flying around in their little eating their pills for lunch <laughs> and everything. <laughs> and then you've got Bewitched, which is like a a witch who has to suppress her powers in order to have all the mod cons in her house because you know her husband's uh, an advertising exec. So <laughs> there's this. A lot of and the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, the Hillbillies who strike it rich and end up in Beverly Hills. I think it's had a real effect on the way I write because I've never sort of really been. I like reading narrative realism, but when I write, it always seems to be in this kind of fragments and way of piecing fragments together to create a story. Um, that's got a lot of space in it and a lot of juxtapositions and a lot of connections that then fly outside of the actual piece of writing, which when you think about TV, you've got the advertisements, you know, interrupting it. You've got... Yeah, there's a lot minute. of meta text going on. Yes, yeah. it's, it's, it's montage and it's um, mm. a, a range of voices. That was my first narrative language. That's what I learnt story from. And so yeah, for me to, to kind of write in a single kind of a voice for a long narrative linear thing that goes for you know three four hundred pages, it just doesn't kind of work for the way my brain works. <laughs> yeah, which which may or may not have been innate, but it was definitely expressed through the media you were exposed to when you were a, a young woman. Yes, uh, you know, and, with, and then with the, 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 the you know the iPhone age, your brain's wired differently again, and mm. uh, or the smartphone age, I should say. And mm-hmm. so I think that sort of those kind of if that kind of generational thing has any meaning to me, it's it's around what was your formative way of producing meaning and and relating to the world? And so for me, it was television more than books. It was books as well, but it was television. So TV and the lexicon of TV was kind of the palette you were drawing from when you were starting to think of doing creative work. Unconsciously, certainly not mm-hmm. consciously, but sort of. I think when I look, when I you know, when I started to sort of think, well, why do I write like this? And I think sort of, I also was writing a lot in that time in the eighties when there was a lot of questioning about discursive practices, to use for want of a better word, and why certain forms of language and s- certain styles of of communicating favoured a certain kind of subject or a certain kind of story or a linear realist language works better for a certain kind of story. Whereas if you're kind of coming from somewhere else, um, it can be sometimes hard to fit your life into that nice, smooth, linear um, Mm. language. So uh, I guess one of the challenges for me has been how to write in a way that you can tell a story and have that narrative pull that sort of really most people seem really love mm-hmm. at the same time as leave a lot of space in it and a lot of um, ability to have different voices. I've returned to poetry in the last few years and I think the book that I sent you, mm-hmm. Back of Bondage, is, it's like a, a memoir about a, a year in my life. Um, but told through poetry. I, I can see why, through your understanding of the work and, and how you were relating to not only what you were consuming in your formative years, but how you then approached creating things, wanting to, to leave space in there for the reader to interpret and to put elements of themselves in there rather than kind of leaving this airless mass of media out there. And leaving space for me to not be pinned down to one version of myself. 
well, one version of that story. You know what I mean? Like you, you, yeah. you memory, you tell a story and you, you tell it at one stage in your life and it has certain things about it that make sense. But in a different stage of your life, you might look at it completely different. So I like finding a way to, to tell a story, to talk about something, but that doesn't lock you into the story, particularly mm. if it's sort of, you know, there might be difficult aspects to it. If mm-hmm. you tell, like, people just repeating their story often just locks them into that, you know, I'm victim or whatever it might be. And so to find a way to sort of tell a story that allows you to sort of move around in it yourself and see different things in it when you come back to it and something is sort of... And I think poetry is a really interesting form for that. As a form, how has poetry been going, in, especially in the Australian context that you've been working in? And what's the uh, the landscape been like for poetry? Oh, it's, it's booming at the moment. I mean, it's not something... You, you kind of have to let go of the idea of making money. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can do that, or if you have another way to make money, um, it's it's incredibly rich. I mean, the, there's some just extraordinarily good poets around at the moment and lots of them and lots of communities um, like I live in the central coast so I'm in between Sydney and Newcastle unfortunately a bit too far away from either of them but um, (laughs) both of them have really vibrant communities and Newcastle is an amazing example of a regional town that has just built this extraordinary supportive poetry culture that then creates very rich poetry out of it so um, mm. there's there's an enormous amount around at the moment and an enormous <laughs> amount of really good people and then there's the performance side of it so yeah no it's a very um, thriving culture at the moment and of course when you talk to a creator about the work they make they're synthesizing a lot of the environment they're in and what are the overarching themes of the time so you you'd mentioned with the Jetsons and the TV shows you were watching as, as a young girl that uh, with all the Cold War was out looming still quite large and sort of collective memory being only 20 years past at that point through the last couple decades of being active in poetry. Can you pick out some of the, the main themes that have affected the community that um, sort of leading up to today? And of course, we'll, we'll kind of talk about how climate change is factoring into people's work and your work and how you're thinking about it. Before we get to the present day, what changes have kind of affected the community over the last couple of decades? That might be something I might have to ask somebody else in no another interview. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole field of echo poetics mm. and stuff, which I'm not really up with. But I'd be very interested in getting some people who are and talking to them about it. So can we well, that's edit a good that teaser one out? for a future <laughs> question. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Beth, we're going to start talking about your your work and your your books of poetry. I'm curious though to get into the climate crisis. When did awareness of climate change kind of enter into your perception and then how did it start to affect your work? When I was very young, I was quite religious. I was more religious than even the rest of my family for a while. And I think that was because I had I was terribly troubled by the suffering in the world. And religion seemed to sort of be the the only thing at hand that sort of gave me a handle on that. And and then as I got older and got into went to uni and discovered politics, that gave me a much better way of, <laughs> of thinking about it. So I think that 
concern about things has always been there. And I can remember one time when I was about 15 and when I was still going to church, we had this discussion group that I used to go to. And my brother had started going to Swinburne Tech to do engineering. And he started bringing back the student newspaper. And it had this thing in it about that at the time, one of the main brands of tuna, that they were using very young boys to dive to get the tuna or whatever it was anyway. And so they were asking people to stop using that tuna as boycott it. And I thought, oh, mm. of course we've got to stop using that tuna. <laughs> I mean, like, who would even think for two seconds that you've got to, you know. And so I went, and of course these people at church would be really concerned about that. And so I told them all about it and they just looked blankly at me. Mm. And that was such a sort of a shock to realise that most people aren't prepared to even change the brand of tuna they use. Mm-hmm. to look at these problems that are out of sight, out of mind for them. So I think there was a lot of little points of a, a sort of quite shocking kind of education there. But I, I found my people when I went to uni. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, was, I was very fortunate in that. And, and it was a mix of people who were very into politics, but also some zoologists. So they're very into environmental things and the importance of the smallest little animal, that kind of thing. And... Back in those days, we didn't call it climate change. It was the greenhouse effect mm-hmm. and um, pollution. More just talked about pollution. And then there's also the campaign to save um, Lake Pedder and the wood chipping was uh, a big issue. But it was all sort of tied up with the politics and stuff for me. 20, oh, gosh, is it that long? It's almost 20 years ago. I bought a house in Creswick near Ballarat my first ever house, a little old house. And I think the, and I started this grand plan of this garden. It was f- just completely full of weeds <laughs> at the time. <laughs> and so I got in the, the um, bobcats and the bulldozers and stuff and started trying to create a, a bit of a permaculture garden. And about six months after I got there, stage four drought water restrictions came in. Mm. And that lasted all the time I was there for nine years. So you were not allowed to turn a tap on outside. And I'm trying to sort of establish a garden (laughs) under those circumstances. So I think that might have attuned me more to there's something about living in the country and and gardening that does change the way you think about the world and the environment and so on. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, um, we started having those 45-degree days and it would just, you'd come outside and the garden would just be blasted. Like, you know, plants would just be white as if, and... um, and then the Black Saturday fires and so on. So at the same time as getting more and more aware and then the, the news come, you know, like this is getting more and more urgent. It's like every month now it's, it, they're saying, well, there's less time than we thought to make the changes. At the same time as this incredible shift to the right, I've, I've been thinking for a long time and thinking about the people that were around in the 1930s and aware that the world was heading towards another major war. Mm-hmm and Nazism and everything. And it's like, if you were in Germany in 1935, at what point would you decide to give up your job, give up everything you were doing and fight it? Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of been on my mind for quite a few years now. And it's just getting more and more. And But I think that sort of sense of that incredible urgency, it's very hard to hold in your head the idea that there's a crisis at the same time as there's just business as usual going on around yeah, you. Yeah, the extreme juxtaposition is Yeah, really it's to, very, very to hard to, to, to get into that crisis thinking and so I think that sort of there just has been that effect of more and more people 
and, and and this is why the the extinction rebellion stuff is just so important. You, we have to have it in front of our noses every single day in an inconvenient way. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that sort of I'm very grateful to the people that have just been hammering away at bringing it to consciousness because um, see you can sustain a, a crisis mode. Once you have a curriculum mass of society mobilizing around it, yeah, yeah, you definitely can't maintain it in isolation. Yeah, you really need to have people around you to sort of know that you're not crazy to start thinking like that. Yeah. So were this Art Breaker, our new show, we would do some very fancy production work and potentially even have voice actors or friends uh, reading out works uh, along with uh, willing authors when we get them, which is great. Uh, were this a Artbreaker episode about music, we would have instrument stems and various tracks, and it would all be very ornate and interesting. But this is still climactic, and we're keeping things lo-fi and accessible. So Beth has kindly volunteered to read out one of her poems, and we can have a dramatic reading from the author, and then have a chat about it. I'm really looking forward to it. So, Beth, what's the name of this poem? So this is called Free Camping, and it's from Vagabondage, which was about, the, the whole book is about a year I lived in a camper van. So Free Camping, Wild Things. I was thinking about the year we planted the plastic flowers along the fence. So hardy, no watering. Was it the same year I ate the wattle seeds to see if I might die? Or the time I found that rusty knife? I should have known that the seeds were friendly because wattle sap was our chewing gum standing for hours beside the road, picking off the choice bits. Always had a fascination with free food, just for the taking, wild things. The rabbits my brothers would bring back from over the hill, the blackberries in the gully, the mushrooms I loved to collect in my billy, striding through the paddocks, eyes peeled for treasure. Sadly, way too slimy and repulsive to stomach, though I was tempted each year by the aroma and, of course, by the free food, free food, collected it myself aspect, pity about the slime. And here, beside a river, I eat kefir for breakfast, nurtured it myself, a culture of bacteria multiplying happily in milk, an ecosystem in a jar. Loves to travel, thinking perhaps of those years it spent riding on horseback over the steppes, thinking, me, about the billions of organisms that make up me, whole worlds, and connect me out into other worlds through a skin full of critters, a wilderness of small things, mattering. And I, too, am a wild thing, growing in my mother's womb unwanted, wrong time, wrong place, twisting and turning, can't get comfortable, entering the world in the witching hour, face up and howling. So I'm curious in what ways that started to play out in your work, especially at times when you're feeling that that crisis mode Mm. did it feel like an imperative to begin to engage with through writing which was the the medium you were kind of um putting your thoughts out into the world with yeah it's been quite challenging because you sort of think well do i just keep writing the books i'm writing because that's who i am and one thing Mm. i have learned over many years of writing is that you kind of have to be the writer you are not the writer you think you should be Mm -hmm. but at the same time I do see that there's a really strong role for creativity of any kind and creativity that does explore that kind of personal politics and just the way we we think and feel but at the same time yeah it, it is challenging for me about sort of am I doing enough so I have actually started a piece that is more directly 
confronting it. Mm. And I, ne- I, I used to always think it was a bit precious when people said you don't talk about a work in progress because you'll jinx it. <laughs> but I learned that it's but true. But now you're there. Yeah, yeah, now I'm there. And you kind of got to hold the energy of it. And if you start yeah. talking about it too much, it does kind of, you know, why write it if you've already talked about it? But mm-hmm. um, so that's the first time I'm. it's new for me to do something like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's the only way artists and writers can respond. I think it's about... You know, even just making connections in the Facebook, you know, is is a great connector of artists and writers and people in politics and stuff. And any connection you make with anybody is important for how we're going to get through this. And I think for me, Facebook is kind of like microblogging. And so I just, I share an awful Mm. lot of political stuff and that's one kind of outlet for me. But the way I deal with things is through writing you know, it's it's like if you're in it for the long haul, mm-hmm. um, you know, health problems and stuff. That means I can't kind of get out there in the barriers like yeah. I would like to. But it's I think we all have to find our own response to it and our way of connecting in with it. But I think it is about connecting in, and that's why I was very pleased with your you know invitation to join your little collective. Um, Our pirate ship. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on board, <laughs> Beth. Um, with your decision to get involved in this active way of, of writing a piece, kind of imagining that future of, of grappling with it without talking about details or anything. But the decision to get to that point, was that because you were exposed to other like-minded people? You were seeing other works. You, this was kind of a thing that you could see was a way in which you could begin to grapple with climate change. It's actually been quite an interesting experience so far because by imagining the worst... And then trying to sort of, well, what? how would you choose? How would you cope with mm. that ethical dilemma and this thing and so on? Because to me, it's not just about what's happening to what we think of as nature, but it's also the kinds of choices and decisions we're going to be confronted with. It was almost calming mm-hmm. in a way to actually confront it. And I guess it's like, I don't know not having had a terminal illness but maybe there's a point Mm. when you have a terminal illness when you recognize that you have you know possibly limited time and you you have to just choose to be the best you can be yeah as well as still try and do things to try and stave it off or make it last as long as or be as less painful or whatever Mm. but it's it's you know, if we're on the way out as a species, how do we die? Do we die with integrity or do we die just, you know, eating each other kind of thing? Yeah. I think those things matter. Every choice you make still matters. In the same way as it sort of when I was 15, recognising that the choice you make, even a choice you make in what tuna you buy, mm-hmm. has an effect all through the world you know, has effect on the other side of the world and so on, that every choice we make in how we relate to each other and consume is part of this whole thing and is going to make a difference in some way for good or ill in the whole thing. So we still got to just keep living. I mean, I guess it's like that Buddha saying that after enlightenment, chop wood. (laughs) (laughs) Even when you've got to go, okay, this is probably happening, Mm. you've still got to work out how to live in the best way you can yeah as well as trying to contribute something to try and lessen the impact of it or to change it or whatever but for me it's also very much about politics i mean i've um 
family member <laughs> was sort of saying, sent me a message saying, oh, I agree with you about climate change and all this kind of stuff. But like, I know he voted Liberal. Mm-hmm. And I just think, you know, he's saying, oh, I try and do the best. I have solar and try and recycle a bit and stuff. And those little tiny decisions are important. But then if you go and vote in a government like this, they're making mm-hmm. massive decisions and choices and changes that are going to have huge effects and so in a way I I still see sort of who you vote for is probably one of the most important things you're going to do. So here's the question then Beth as a writer could you write a character could you really inhabit someone who holds that contradictory nature of Believing in, like, acknowledging the truth and yet voting against it for for surface anodyne reasons? It's not. It doesn't sort of, yeah, it's a thought. That's an interesting thought. You might want to write that one. <laughs> but, yeah, no, that would be an interesting story. It's, it's, again, it comes back to people not wanting to change their tuna. You know, it's sort of they'll change things that they find comfortable to change, but the idea of voting liberal all your life. Mm-hmm. You still want to be the first. I guarantee you the people at that church, it's not that they were opposed to changing the type of tuna. It's just they didn't want to be the first one to do it. Well, they thought it was silly. Um, they thought I looked crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. Maybe some of them did change the tuna. Maybe the ones that didn't speak up and didn't say, well, who cares? The, the, maybe there was someone sitting there who cha- went out and changed their tuna. I mean, you just don't know who you're going to affect, do you? Or what, what something no, you no, say you is going to have an impact. And I really like that idea that, you know... People need to be exposed to an idea many, many times. And so you never mm-hmm. give up on anybody. No, they could be one why question away from realising, oh, I don't actually have a good answer to this. Yeah. But at the same yeah. time, I don't bother with people who, who are rusted on, mm-hmm. you know, right-wing denialists, yeah, whatever. So much I, I don't kind of – I'm yeah. not interested in arguing with them because if there's been a history of there's nothing we say that's ever going to change their mind, you know. And um, But there's a that doesn't – mean that you don't talk to people because a lot of people say oh there's no point in talking to people who don't you know who vote the other way because you can't change people but you only have to change a tiny tiny percentage of people in the middle people who don't vote at all or the people who donkey vote or the or informally vote or who don't think it matters who've been convinced that it doesn't is not important if everybody who whinged about those people on facebook actually had conversations with them over the next couple of years Mm-hmm. It would change everything because those people can be changed with information. So, yes, I think we've got to learn to have those uncomfortable conversations too. I don't know about you, but I was brought up, you know, you don't talk about those things. But um, mm. And it's, it's, it's hard to talk about politics with people that you see either at work or wherever you are, family mm-hmm. members or something. But I, I think we have to be prepared to have those conversations and learn how to have those conversations in a skilled and kind way mm-hmm. and um, and to learn to save your breath from the ones that really are never going to change fine or that require are probably going to require, require you to change you're able to <laughs> put in that's true we don't have to get everyone you don't have to get um, everyone you only need to have like a small percentage to shift change to change you know and even though there's there's so much wrong with you know the the Labor Party, there would have been a vast difference if they were in. Yeah, that's vast, right. vast, vast difference. That's right. So, 
to sort of steer it back to our our new project and what we're really excited to have you on for Beth is one of the the inaugural hosts of Artbreaker. I'm curious, what's a time if you can remember that your mind was changed or or your perspective was shifted or widened because of art? See, the strange thing is that what's coming to mind is not something that's shifted me, you know, in informationally. Mm-hmm. But it's the first time I I read. Prufrock, um, you know, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot. I, d- I don't know it. I'm an uncultured... Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's Let Us Go Then, You and I. Uh, and it's, it's a very famous um, poem that I did in um, HSC. And mm. I'd never been exposed to poetry. I can remember exactly where I was when I read it. And it just blew my brain. I mean, he was actually quite right-wing, I think. Um, if, mm-hmm. and, and, but it, it was just that, that use of language that was just so... I kind of feel it did something to me. And I'd like to think that it's not necessarily the informational content that gets put in by art and creativity and beauty and that magic of something that's just put together in a different way. It's also that it, it shifts your, something in your brain and that then can allow in other ideas, maybe with a bit more ease. So this is called Wild Things 2, A Serenade. I would like to sing a song to the loose, the wandering and the unattached, to those who cannot grow themselves in rows for the benefit of others. I sing to the ones whose invisible roots disappear down deep into the earth to bring up treasure, to those whose mutations may one day prove beneficial when all hope has failed, to all those still unmet. I salute the wild things, the untamed, the disarrayed, the ones impelled by their own sweet, strange DNA to take hold even when life is harsh and keeps slipping out of reach extending under fences to the despair of gardeners, offering themselves as roughage and shade, striding forth in the wake of the bulldozer, first after the fire, bedding themselves into clay and shaking it. Opportunists, diagnosticians, red flag wavers, signalers of deficiencies and imbalance, resistors to the end. I salute even those that in the presence of crimes, ignorance, neglect, greed, become thugs, a mirror. The ones saying, too much here in too few hands, too much and too long, a disrespect of the sensitive and their protectors, the rare and the different. Too indiscriminate, poisonous, and I will take it back and take it over and create a tide of seed that covers everything and entangles generations. I salute you, O wise and terrible weeds, the tasty and the bitter, the nourishing and the deadly. I honour that small wisp that separates you from fruit and flowers and the crack in me that holds you dormant until ready or not. So beautiful. It's even better when they've got the music and everything around it. Some students at University of Western Australia made the most beautiful video out of this poem. And I had nothing to do with it. And it 
my publisher just sent me the link to it one day and um, it's on YouTube and I'm up to it in the notes. And they did such a beautiful job, which is often not the case with people reading other people's work and um, with the visuals and music by Chris Zabriskie and um, it was done by a woman called Oakley Fletcher. I really like this poem and I think it might fit some of what we've been talking about, hopefully. So, Beth, to, to wrap it up, maybe a final question, leave us pondering something on the way out here. I was wondering if you could tell us about a particular piece of art that has or does still deeply move you. That's such a great question, and I found that very difficult to sort of think of any one thing like that. And all that popped up for me was one of the epigraphs I used in Vagabondage was from Michel Foucault. And he said, but couldn't everyone's life become a work of art? Why should the lamp or the house be an art object, but not your life? Welcome to Artbreaker. On this first episode, author James Bradley on his climate fiction novel, Clade. Despite the breeze, the bees are active, circling the hive, crawling in and out, the sound of them frowsy and warm. When Mun buzzes past her face, she lifts a hand and ducks, but almost immediately another lands on her sleeve. This time she doesn't brush it off, but instead pauses, struck by the improbable, clumsy way it moves, legs twitching, wings ready to take off again. It is beautiful, not just as a thing in itself, but for the small wonder of its presence, its strange mixture of the alien and the familiar. Extending a finger, she touches the fabric in front of it, observing the way it pulls back, the flash of aggression before it launches itself into the air, circling past her face so that she must duck once more. Welcome to Artbreaker, the newest podcast on the Climactic Network, where we explore the intersection of art and creativity in a time of climate crisis. My name is Beth Spencer, and my fabulous guest today is multi-award winning author and critic James Bradley. James has published four widely acclaimed novels, including Clade, which was published in 2015, one of the first, if not the first, overtly climate fiction novels published in Australia. All of his books have been shortlisted for or awarded prizes, including his first book, which was Poetry. He edited The Penguin Book of the Ocean, and he also writes essays and reviews. In fact, he was awarded the Pascal Prize for his criticism and reviews in 2012. He has a young adult fiction trilogy in process called The Change, and the first two books are out now with Pan Macmillan, and the third book will be published next year along with a new adult novel, which we're all looking forward to. And just out in the spring issue of Mianjin, a very beautiful and devastating and important essay called Unearthed, Last Days of the Anthropocene. James Bradley, welcome to Climactic. Hi, Beth. It's great to be here. Your novel, Clade, in terms of science fiction, speculative fiction, literary fiction, cli-fi, apocalyptic, dystopian. How would you describe it? One of the things that happened when Clade came out, uh, which I was very aware of, was that when it came out in Australia at the beginning of 2015, there was a degree of kind of surprise or or confusion about how to kind of categorise it or talk about it. And you just kind of got the sense that when people were looking at it, they weren't quite sure what it was. They, they kind of thought, is this science fiction? Is it, you know, what are we going to call it? When it came out 
in the UK and the US towards the end of 2017, people knew exactly what it was. And there'd been this kind of shift in the way we talk about and think about these kinds of books in just that period of time. Part of that is that there's been a very energetic campaign run by a man called Danny Bloom to promote the idea of cli-fi. I must say, from my point of view, I'm always a bit wary of the terminology. I mean, it seems to me that that kind of environmental crisis touches everything in a way that means that in the same way modernity touches everything. It's, it's a condition rather than a genre. And, you know, I mean, it seems to me that there is a kind of erasure that you see going on in lots of our literature and lots of our film where we, we don't talk about these things for various reasons. But, you know, it, it seems to me that if you're not kind of engaging with and writing about those kinds of things at the moment, it's difficult for me to see how your work is really about the world we inhabit. Through the window she can see the sky, the haze of red already visible. On the outside table a currawong moves, black and fast as a blade. As if sensing her it turns and its great yellow eye momentarily meets hers, filling her with a sense of its presence, its perturbation of the universe. Tom never liked the currawongs. They were killers, he said, things that preyed on the eggs of other birds. And yet she does not see a killer. She sees something that is simply itself, a logic translated through space. In a moment it will be gone, rising into the sky on stealthy wing beats, and she will be here, alone. There's a wonderful essay written about 15 years ago now by Robert McFarlane, and one of the things he said was that climate change is difficult to write about because it happens gradually, and what it lacks is the kind of iconography that comes with other kinds of apocalyptic writing. So, you know, you don't have that flash of the nuclear, you don't have the red button, you know, you don't have the hordes of zombies. It's quite a difficult thing to kind of capture this process of gradual change. I think the way we write about it has moved on since then. I do think one of the things that's really interesting over the last five or ten years is watching the way kind of metaphorical language for talking about these things has begun to emerge and the way that you see particular kind of images and motifs and ideas kind of recurring in books that are, that are engaged with these questions, which I think is very interesting. I mean, the book, in a lot of ways, is a book about time. I mean, in an odd kind of way, I see it as a kind of geological fiction. You know, it's, it's a fiction that's about deep time in both directions. The last time Tom came up here, he stood on the deck and watched the birds. He looked old, his face haggard. They're dying, you know, he said, glancing at her as he spoke. He waited for her to answer, and when she did not, he said, not just here, but all over the world. They look fine to me, she said, irritated. They might look fine, but they've stopped breeding. Or if they're still breeding, their eggs aren't hatching. Or the heat is killing the chicks. The ones you can see here are adults because they're all that's left. And when they're gone, that will be the end of them. They're a ghost species. And I guess when I was writing it, one of the things, certainly when I was starting out, was I, I found myself trying to find a way to write about it. And the problem is, of course, you very quickly find yourself writing a book that's about everything. I mean, the problem with climate change, as I said before, is it touches everything. You want to write a book that's about it, you end up thinking, oh, I, I need to write a book that's about what's happening in India and Africa and Australia and Europe, and it's got to be about every level of society, and it's got to be about the non-human, and and it rapidly becomes completely unmanageable. And, and certainly with Clade, I, I had a kind of moment quite early in the process where I went, well, I could flip that around and in a sense write a book which is about quite a small thing, which is a kind of family, 
and look at the way they kind of track through time and the way their lives intersect with what's going on. I mean, that seemed to me to be a really interesting approach because, I mean, I think there's a couple of things there. It pushes you back onto the idea of kind of human continuity, which I think is really important, that kind of sense that climate change and environmental crisis is transformative. Thinking of it as a kind of rupture or, or a kind of break, a kind of end of history is really problematic. We kind of lose our connection to it. But also I think because it allowed me to, to do one of the things I really wanted to do with the book, which was to understand for myself what it might be like to live through that. You know, and one of the things I was trying very hard to do with the book was to create an effective sense of what it might be to live through ongoing climate change over generations. Can you tell us a bit about the title, Clade? Yeah, the title, I guess, came reasonably early in the process. One of the funny things about titles is, in my experience, you either have them from the beginning or they're really difficult to find, you know, um, and they really matter because titles, I mean, I always think titles are incredibly important because they're one of the ways that you know what you're writing about. You know, they're one of the ways that that tell you what the book's about and one of the things you kind of work within. But the, the, the word itself, you know, clade is a scientific term. It means a, a group of organisms with a common ancestor. It comes from the Greek word klados, which means, you know, branch and it is literally one branch on the on the web of life and I, I kind of loved it because it first of all you know that's in a sense what the story is you know it's about this one family but it was also that the word itself I don't know I, I kind of love the texture of the word I, I, I'm a, I love words like I love that kind of I, I often love I guess the kind of textural nature of language and, and clade's one of those wonderful words that simultaneously feels very sleek it feels very modern, it feels very scientific, but then it's got this wonderful kind of echo of words like glade, you know, so it makes you think of forests and sacredness and a series of things like that. And I love that kind of duality about it. So I just like the word. Does that make sense? It's it's a wonderful kind of feeling word. And I often think we end up talking a lot about books in kind of thematic terms, but we don't talk very much, I think, about the linguistic qualities of them and and the kind of textural and rhythmic qualities of them and I, certainly when I'm writing they're the things that I'm worrying about like what's it sound like from sentence to sentence you know what's the rhythm feel like how's it how's it kind of working I think it's a great title for all those reasons but also because it also gives an idea of the structure of the book it's like interlinked stories that also kind of feed back into each other in lots of different ways so this ongoing family over 50, 60 years is kind of like a multifaceted protagonist, if you think in that classic plot way of you've got a protagonist and an antagonist. So the family, they're standing in for all of us in some ways, and in a classic way, that would then pose the extreme weather as the antagonist, the enemy almost, that, that's threatening them and that they're trying to work around or survive. I don't think I'd ever thought about that kind of connection to the traditional idea of the landscape in Australian literature before. That's, that's, that's really interesting. You were talking about the structure before, and one of the things I wanted the structure very much to do was to work, I, I guess, like a poem. You know, I wanted that sense that the book, you know, it's in ten parts and the parts all kind of speak to each other across the book. And I occasionally people say it's a book of stories, and it's like it's not a book of stories, it's a novel. It's just a novel that doesn't have a kind of central narrative. I guess in terms of kind of making that work, I suppose I had a kind of structure from the beginning and, and it always seems to me that we assume that narrative only or that narrative energy only arises out of those kind of traditional ideas about, you know, kind of Aristotelian ideas about kind of conflict and change and things like that. But it seems to me you can actually generate 
urgency in a whole series of other ways, you know, and some of them around voice. There's other kind of techniques you can use. So it is a book that I guess kind of moves away from a, a conventional narrative to, to be in pieces. That seems to me to be simultaneously a way of, as you say, offering different perspectives, showing you change over time. I guess one of the things I really wanted the book to do was for a lot of it to happen in the gaps. I wanted to write a book where so often 10 years will have passed between the different sections and it doesn't fill in the blanks quite often. And I wanted that sense that what's absent is really present in some sense because the, that kind of captures one of the things that's happening in the book, which is this kind of thinning of the world and this kind of losing of the world and this dropping away of things. But it also means that as the book goes on, you get this kind of acceleration in time. So I wanted this kind of sense that it was moving forward in time more and more towards the end as it kind of moves out into the future. She wakes with the dawn, light flooding into her room. When she and Tom bought the house, it was impossible to sleep past sunrise, especially in summer. Daybreak bringing kookaburras and cuckoos and swooping flocks of cockatoos, their crazed laughter and screeching clamour echoing through the trees like a memory of the primordial forest. The diversity and profligacy of the bird life was a big part of what Tom loved about being here, his pleasure in it a source of amusement for the two of them. It was the theirness of them he said he loved, their presence and life and total absorption in the moment. Most of the birds are gone now. She's not sure when they began to disappear. Elsewhere there have been huge die-offs, great waves of birds falling from the skies. Yet here the process has been more gradual, species slowly disappearing, those that remain less numerous with each passing year. Do you think writing about it did help you deal with the emotions of it, the horror, the anxiety, the grief, the grief and guilt and the depression, the anger, the whole range of emotions? Did it um, help you deal with it? No. I'm good at compartmentalising, which is part of it. One of the things that's Clay's worth remembering is I was writing it back in kind of 2013. So it's now some years since it was written in a way. Um, and things have moved very, very fast and gotten much worse very, very fast. Certainly faster than I thought it was going to happen when I was writing the book. The novel worked in a sense for me because one of the things I was engaged in was a kind of intellectual exercise about trying to think through what it was going to be like. Because I think one of these things is it's actually incredibly difficult to imagine what the world is going to be like. There's that sense that, you know, you look around yourself. If what you do is make a realistic appraisal of what the science says, you know, most of what's around us is going to be utterly transformed within a decade or two. And that's incredibly difficult to imagine. So one of the things I was doing with the book was to try and give myself a framework for imagining that. And I guess in that sense it succeeded. I actually find in an odd way writing about this stuff and thinking about it all the time, which I do quite a lot, is actually not good for your mental health. I mean, you end up in a situation where you're wandering around and you feel like this kind of lunatic, you know, and you're looking at the world and thinking this is all doomed all the time. And that it's quite a difficult thing to deal with some of the time. You know, not all of the time. Like I say, I'm pretty good at pretty good at compartmentalizing. <laughs> but um but you know, it is, it is it is certainly there are moments when I find it very, very difficult and where it kind of all crashes down. And then the, the, certainly I have to be quite careful about how I talk about it around people, you know, because there is a kind of conversation that if you're involved in the world of climate and environmental stuff that you end up having with other people in that world where 
you kind of talk to each other and it, it, you have someone you can talk to about how bad things are going to get and how quickly that's going to happen. But you can't have that conversation with other people because you sound like a lunatic and then you depress them and upset them. So it, it, it's kind of a socially very awkward conversation. And in an odd kind of way, I think that's one of the things that fiction does and that you, know, you can do as a writer is kind of introduce those things into the conversation and force people to kind of grapple with them. A lot of time it's just too difficult. I think at the moment we sit at a really odd point for lots of people and we have, if you look at the science, about 10 years to reduce, you know, to have any chance of staying under 1.5, we've got about 10 years to get emissions down to half of what they are. At the moment they're rising still, you know, it's somewhere between 1% and 3% a year. So, you know, what we actually need to be doing is getting them down to about 50% of what they are over the next decade. Now, at this point, I think the reality is that, you know, conventional politics has failed. No, I, I don't think there's any question about that. And that means that it's, you know, that the only way anything is going to happen now is if, you know, citizens make it happen, go out in the streets and make this happen, and they do the things that make, make change happen. But the problem is in Australia we have the two major parties who are, you know, and I, I don't want to engage in they're as bad as each other because they are not as bad as each other. The parties are not the same, but both major parties are a break on action in this country one way or another. But the problem then is that the only way you're going to get real change is if you can get a party of government to do this stuff. So we're in this kind of really odd bind. People need to kind of take direct action. People need to be doing things. People need to be protesting. People need to be joining political parties. They need to be doing all of the things that you do in order to enact social change and to create movements. But simultaneously, what we need to be doing is working on the parties to change these things, because I mean, we're not going to get any of this stuff through unless we can actually get it through parliaments. You're not alone in your sense of powerlessness and lack of agency is both reassuring, but it's also a way of finding agency. You know, it's a way of reminding yourself that, you know, on your own, you might not be able to achieve very much. But, you know, with 500 other people around you, you possibly can. Thank you for joining us for this first episode of Artbreaker. And now, here's a final reading from James, from his young adult fiction trilogy, The Change. I once thought love was about giving yourself over to something, about losing yourself. But love isn't about surrendering yourself. It's about being connected, through space and time, to others who know you, and care for you, and will help you be. Sometimes those connections are ones we make every day, one smooth by proximity. Sometimes they are more distant, Connections of memory that bind us to those we have left behind. Yet either way, we are all caught in a web of connection to the living and the dead and the yet to be born. A web of memory and forgetting that connects past to present to future, in which each of us is forever becoming and passing away. That is what makes us real, even if, as I have, we travel so far we leave almost all of it behind. And at the same time, we are made real by the fact that we too will pass in time. I know this because I have been both. I have been part of a whole, spread across space, stretching endlessly back through time and on onto the horizon of the future. And I have been alone, or thought myself alone, only to discover I am still connected, that I bear them in me and always will, just as they will bear me in them, onward into the light.
Thank you for joining us for the first episode of Artbreaker, the show all about how and why art is being made in these climactic times. This is the first new show on the Climactic Network and is a production of the Climactic Collective, a group of climate-concerned citizens from Australia and the South Pacific dedicated to creating a space for the climate community to share their stories and be heard. The Collective is open and welcome to new members. So if you've got podcasting or media skills you'd like to share with the community, or you'd like to develop them, you're very welcome to get in touch with us. All the details can be found at www.climactic.fm or send us an email to hello at climactic.fm. Beth Spencer was the interviewer and host for this episode. James Bradley was our guest. And the music on this episode was from Nine Inch Nails and their Creative Commons album, Ghosts. You can find a link in the show notes. If you enjoyed this show, we'd greatly appreciate a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and if you'd share it with a friend. Thank you for listening and stay creative in these climactic times. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to The Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening. And from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.